I would love to have had a mentor and would still love to have a mentor. That's something that I didn't have. I've had, you know, a couple along the way, had one really good mentor early on in my career. And sadly, he passed away from a massive heart attack. So when he passed away, that was really probably the last mentor that I had. So I miss that. And even today, I miss not having a mentor. Welcome to You Belong in the C-Suite podcast. You are ambitious in life and in your career, but something is missing. You want to bring more of your passion to what you do, because let's be honest, you pour a ton into your work and it needs to mean more. I'm your host, Laura Eigel. I'm a mom, wife, PhD, coach, advocate, introvert, and indoor rowing fanatic. I'm passionate about living a life that's in line with my values. We'll give you the actionable tips and tools you need to lead with your values, make a difference, and have career success. The world needs more diversity and authenticity in the top jobs at organizations. Your leadership belongs there. You belong in the C-suite. I'm really happy to talk about the You Belong in the C-suite group coaching retreat. So you know that we have different cohorts. We've had seven cohorts so far over the last three years, and all of those except for one cohort have been virtual. And so this is the first time I'm hosting an in-person retreat, and I'm hosting it for the alumni of the You Belong in the C-Suite group coaching program. So the retreat is limited to alumni or current participants only. So you may be asking, Laura, then why are you telling me about this? I've not been a part of your group coaching before. I can't come. Well, there still is time for you to join us because we are now enrolling for our next cohort, cohort eight for group coaching. So if you join us for this cohort, then you are invited to join us for our first retreat. So to learn more about our retreat, go to thecatchgroup.com slash group coaching or send me an email at hello at thecatchgroup.com. We'll be accepting applications for group coaching for this cohort through February and getting started with our six month group coaching cohort in March. And then the retreat is in April. So if you are a high achieving woman who is looking to build her career intentionally, then this is the group for you to join. It's a really great program for women who are either looking for their next career move and want to understand what, get clarity on what that next career move should be, or it's a really great fit for people that are new in role and want to set themselves up for success. So go to thecatchgroup.com slash group coaching to apply now. Welcome to this week's episode of the You Belong in the C-Suite podcast. I'm excited for you to meet our guest today, Dr. Chuck Wallington. Dr. Wallington is the author of A Seat at the Table, Insights from the Leadership Journeys of African-American Executives. Inspired by his own experiences as a C-Suite executive, Chuck interviewed 30 African-American male executives across the United States from a variety of industries about their own leadership journeys to the C-Suite. The book provides insights into their challenges and their triumphs. In addition to being an author, Chuck is an executive vice president and chief marketing and communications officer for Cone Health, a healthcare enterprise based in Greensboro, North Carolina. 
In his role, he reports to the CEO and is one of the 10 members of Cone Health's most senior leadership team that establishes the business strategy for the enterprise. Prior to joining Cone Health, Chuck held leadership roles with American Express, where he was a vice president of communications. In that role, Chuck had a global responsibility for internal and external communications for the American Express customer service centers in the United States, Canada, Mexico, and India. Prior to joining American Express, Chuck held leadership roles with Nabisco Brands and J.R. Reynolds Tobacco Company. He was a newspaper reporter for a brief period of time after undergraduate school. He earned his bachelor's degree in journalism from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. In 2017, he returned to the classroom and earned his master's degree in communications management from Syracuse University. Then, in 2021, Chuck earned his PhD in leadership studies from North Carolina A&T State University. His dissertation is entitled Navigating the C-Suite, Exploring the Leadership Journeys of African-American Male Executives in U.S. Corporations. He's converted his dissertation into his book called A Seat at the C-Suite Table, Insights from the Leadership Journeys of African-American Executives. Chuck and his wife, Sandra, reside in Greensboro, North Carolina. In my discussion with Chuck, we talked about his career journey and pivotal experiences along the way that have shaped his career. We talked about how his early career as a reporter influenced his later research and gaining insights into the experiences and career journeys of African-American male leaders in the C-suite. We also talked about how his own experiences compared to those that he interviewed for his research. Chuck highlighted the things that African-American C-suite leaders wished they had had more of and less of in their careers. And we also talked about how their experiences now shape how they lead and develop others. He talked about the importance of understanding the experiences of others, especially if those experiences are different than your own. I know that you are going to learn a lot from our conversation. Don't forget to grab his book, A Seat at the C-Suite Table. The link is in the show notes. Let's get started. I want to welcome you to the You Belong in the C-Suite podcast. Chuck, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Laura. I'm excited to be here. I'm so happy that we were connected and that we're talking about just really important topics. More importantly, I'm so glad that we get to hear it from you. Because I want to, I just want to deep dive on you, your career journey, why you have this new book coming out, and the lessons that you learned from your research. So if you're okay, let's dive in. Let's do it. Let's talk about it. Perfect. So first, tell me, tell me more about you. I'd love to hear more about life story, career history, everything and anything you want to tell us. How, how can we get to know what your perspective has been um, in building this career? So I'll tell you, um, I am old enough to remember when most cities and towns had morning newspapers and afternoon newspapers. And in our household, we subscribed to both. And so I grew up watching parents read two papers a day. And very early on in my life, 
I became interested in newspapers and the news and have always been curious about what's going on in the world around me. So I knew very early on as a child that I wanted to be a newspaper reporter. And so I set my sights on preparing to become a newspaper reporter. So I intentionally picked an undergraduate school that has a school of journalism. And so that's what led me to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And immediately out of undergraduate school, I had an opportunity to work in Detroit with the Detroit Free Press and in Dallas for the Dallas Times-Herald. And I only worked as a reporter for a limited amount of time, but it allowed me to live into that dream that I'd always wanted to be a newspaper reporter. Little did I know that those skills were being embedded in me to allow me to do what I now do and have done for many, many years, which is strategic marketing and strategic communications. So I am still living the dream, if you will, as a reporter, doing so inside of U.S. corporations and uh, getting to ask all the right questions so that I can understand what needs to be communicated and marketed internally and externally. So that's the short story on my career and how I got started. I can certainly go into more detail if you'd like me to. I'd love to hear how, what was the transition like from newspaper world to corporate America? What was that like for you? So it was a bit different because as a newspaper reporter, you are a bit more independent. You don't always know from day to day what you're covering. And that's actually the beauty of what you do as well. So I never really knew from day to day because I was an entry level general assignment reporter. So uh, that's what I did as a newspaper reporter. When I transitioned into corporate communications, again, the skill set that I took with me is the skill set that I use to this very day. My understanding of what news is, my understanding of how to gather news, my understanding of how to keep myself out of the story um, and allow the facts to speak for themselves so that the reader can draw his or her own conclusions. So that's what I took into corporate communications very early on, and it's how I have maneuvered through my entire career as well. So the transition was easier for me because I did come from that reporting background and I brought those skills into, um, into the U.S. corporations. What struck me, though, from the very beginning as I looked around was I didn't see a lot of folks who looked like me. So when I saw people of color, they were either in the manufacturing plants or they were in administrative roles, um, entry-level professional roles like I was, and there's certainly nothing wrong with that. But as I looked around, I didn't see folks in higher-level positions, and I always wondered, where are those folks? And I also wondered what must their journeys be like? And so from very early on in my 20s, I just I had that yearning to understand where are the folks who look like me and what are their experiences like? And it took me until now to really be able to understand what their experiences are, uh, what the similarities are, what the differences are, and how they frankly manage to navigate and maneuver and be successful in spite of situations and circumstances that weren't really set up for them. You know, if you think about and trace the history of U.S. corporations, as I, I did early on in the book, you know, the research certainly reminds us that if you think about U.S. corporations, they were designed by white men primarily for the success of white men. And so if you're a white female or black male or black female, it's difficult, not impossible, but it's difficult oftentimes to come in and understand what success looks like for you. So 
that was also a part of my experience as well. And it's what motivated me to, you know, continue trying to put one foot in front of the other, to continue to take on broader assignments as they were made available to me, to raise my hand and say, I believe I can do this if you'll give me the opportunity. And thankfully, those things have come together for me. And, uh, you know, I sit here now um, in a C-suite position, and I'm very grateful for that opportunity. And I realize that every day that I come in, you know, I get to re-earn that opportunity as well. So as you grew your career, like you said, you did not see people that look like you doing the same kinds of jobs as you. What was that like in your own lived experience as you did successfully climb that corporate mm-hmm. ladder? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I saw one or two along the way. There were there were always a couple. And so we found solace in each other. And we would talk about what we saw around us and what we didn't understand. We try to figure things out. But frankly, it was lonely. It was just a very, very lonely experience. I watched the relationships that my white counterparts and colleagues had with each other, both personally and professionally. Um, You know, I would listen on Mondays as people talked about what they did over the weekend. And it was clear that, you know, they, they had relationships. They were doing things after hours and doing things over the weekends. Nothing at all wrong with that. And that relationship And that bond got strengthened over time because they got to know each other as, you know, beyond the the work realm. Right. I never really had those opportunities. So it was it was a bit of a lonely experience, to say the least. And I was young and I was determined. And I do believe and I did believe then that I was doing what I was led to do and what I was called to do. So I didn't let it deter me. There were also, again, one or two people in higher level positions. Fortunately, I got to know them because of the work that I did, and they were also very encouraging. These were primarily black men, a couple of black men, a couple of black women. They were always very encouraging. Uh, They, too, were navigating the the world around them and trying to stay sane and continue to do well, but they were always encouraging of me and what I was attempting to do. But yes, it it was a lonely experience, to say the least. Tell me about furthering your education and getting more interested in this as a topic broader than just your own lived experience, Mm -hmm. but others as well. It seems like that reporter instinct kind of followed you and and, and drove your curiosity and inquiry, maybe? Absolutely, it did. So I decided much later in life to return to school and uh, pursue my master's degree. Uh, And it really came as a challenge from my wife. So I had a milestone birthday and I had said to my wife, you know, I I don't think I'm going to uh, pursue this master's degree. And she said, Chuck, if you're going to do it, now's the time. Either do it or stop talking about it. (laughs) completely your choice. And I support you either way. And so I said, okay, well, there's a challenge. So I applied to Syracuse University, got into the master's program and loved every moment of it. And that was really my reawakening to higher education and academia, because for so long, um, I had really, really focused on being the best professional that I could. And so I was then able to go in uh, with this master's program and really bring the two together, right? So the academic piece of it, as well as the professional piece of it, and the two came together very, very nicely. That was also my first opportunity to do scholarly research. Because again, building on what I'd observed, it it occurred to me that there are not a lot of Black men, not only in U.S. corporations, but specifically in the field of public relations and communications. So I had a professor at Syracuse who challenged me to make that my research topic for my master's thesis, and I did, and end up getting that published as well. 
So what I learned is also what inspired me to also do the research when I made the decision to go on to get my PhD. So what I learned among these men in the field of public relations was that there were not a lot of us because they had very few mentors, coaches, role models once they got into the field or really helped them understand what the profession was all about. Many of them because they never had role models or seen people in their personal lives who do public relations work for a living had no clue what the profession was really about. So when they got to college, they didn't know the courses to take, or perhaps they went to a school that didn't have a school of journalism, but had a mass communications curriculum. They didn't know which courses they needed to take. They didn't really understand the practical experience they needed to get. And so they either floundered in the profession and then moved on, or they figured out over time how to be successful in the profession, or and or they found someone who could help them maneuver along the way. So those were some of the high-level experiences of, again, the 30-plus men in the public relations arena that I talked about. I then finished the master's degree and knew then that I wanted to pursue the PhD. And so I found right here in my hometown, this wonderful PhD program in leadership studies at North Carolina A&T State University that um, allowed me to continue the, the academic journey. And so when it came time to thinking about a dissertation topic, it was right there in front of me. What about the lived experiences more broadly of Black men in U.S. corporations? That was my lived experience, and I wanted to understand from others what have their experiences been like. And the end of the story is truly the end of the story. That's what, that's what uh, allowed me to be able to reach out to 30 men over time understand their stories, uh, bring together the themes from their stories, um, and then write the dissertation and ultimately write the book. I love that that pivotal conversation with your wife. I love it. <laughs> I think it. you had said a couple of times in that answer that you were challenged. It seems like if you are challenged, you are going to rise to the occasion. Is yes. that right? Yeah. Yes. yes. And, so, and so, you know, the message to others is when people challenge you, particularly those whom you know and believe have your best interest at heart, you owe it to yourself to really evaluate that challenge and determine if it is for you or if it's not for you. The other message is, you know, for whoever your special person is in your life, listen to him or her. Again, mm -hmm. in most cases, they have your back, they have your best interest at heart, and they're going to support you. So that was really a pivotal conversation because life would have gone a very different way for me if I had said, oh, I don't think I'm going to do that and uh, not pursued these degrees. It would be very different. Yeah. So let's talk a bit about your research for your PhD. Yeah. I love the continuous learning. I am a continuous learner as well. I am loving that you use qualitative research. Mm -hmm. And so that is not as common in um, academic research. It's usually quantitative. So like or, surveys, or mm -hmm. yeah, survey, like all of those kinds of mm -hmm. things. And so um, I, I love seeing qualitative methods because I use some qualitative methods in my dissertation too. So I love okay. it. And um, I, um, I, you just don't see it as often. And mm -hmm. so I love too, that it marries your report, like your reporting background. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. tell me about how you can bring your reporting background when you have a similar lived experience as the people that you are interviewing, how do you, and do you, do you keep yourself out of it? And how do you do that? And what was that like for you? 
So as you know, with qualitative research, your job is to be the reporter. Your job is to ensure that the data that people share with you, and that's their words, right? In qualitative research, your words are your data. The stories that people share are your data. Your job is to keep the data as pure as you possibly can. So when I made the decision to pursue my PhD, I knew that I would have two things in my favor. One, because I was a reporter, I am a good listener and I know the questions to ask and I know how to ask the questions because again, I was taught that you ask the questions and you listen for the answer and you record the answer and then you can follow up in a way that will allow the person to provide more information, but you keep yourself out of the story. And so that's definitely what I applied when I was doing the research. I will tell you a couple of, of fun facts. So when I started the whole process and I landed on the topic, I personally knew five or maybe six of the men whom I ended up interviewing. Again, to, to further geek out on this for a second, you know, within qualitative methodology, uh, uh, there's a process called snowball sampling, which means that I, from the five people whom I interviewed at the end, I would say, can you recommend someone else to me whom I might interview? And in many cases, they said yes. Some said, I'll think about it. Some said, I just don't know anybody. Sorry, I can't help you. What really got me across the finish line was my broader network, the other men and women who knew knew about the topic and said, I know someone that you should talk to. I'll make the connection. And so oftentimes it was a phone call. More often than not, it was a text exchange or an email exchange. And I followed up from there. And again, once they agreed to do the interview, I set up the very same process to ensure that I was asking the same questions of the same people. Even more importantly, and back to your question, here's where my lived experiences as well as my skills as a reporter really came into place. I had some fascinating conversations with each of these 30 men who really opened up their hearts and their minds about their experiences. Many of them said to me, no one's ever asked me about my experiences before. Perhaps no one's ever cared. Thank you for at least asking me what my journey's been like. And I would acknowledge that and I would go on. It wasn't until the end of each interview when I had turned the recorder off that I said, oh, my God, your story is the same as mine. I experienced the same thing you just talked about, or I would say, and it was all I could do to keep my mouth shut and not interject in the conversation when you were talking about what you experienced. So that's how the two came together. I was very determined to keep the research as pure as I possibly could keep it. And I still wanted to ensure that I had a connection with the folks I was interviewing. And so I purposely waited until the end when we were just talking, you know, guy to guy. And that's when I really commented and really got a chance to bond with some of these men through that process. But again, as a group, they were just thankful that someone cared enough to ask about their experiences and they willingly and vividly and clearly shared their experiences. I would love to talk about some of the themes that came up in a minute, but tell me about the reasoning behind interviewing Black men that have been in the C-suite. Tell me about that decision. Sure. So there is more data regarding the experiences of um, African-Americans as a group 
than there is about Black men in particular. There's also more data about Black women in U.S. corporations than Black men. So there's a gap. And part of what you look for, as you know and will appreciate, when you're going to do your own original research, you really want to find an area, a niche, where you can add to the body of knowledge, so to speak, where your research is really going to stand out as being new and different um, and building on what's already there. So that was very intentional on my part in partnership with my committee chair. And again, I wanted to understand these lived experiences because I have my own lived experiences. So it was really a part of closing the gap or answering the question that I alluded to early on when I started talking, when I said early on in my career, I just wondered where the folks were who looked like me, not just in the field of public relations and communications, but broadly um, in the businesses that I was blessed to work for. Where are the folks who look like me and what are they doing and what are their experiences like? This gave me an opportunity. It was really a full circle moment for me to be able to do that. So it added to the body of knowledge from an academic perspective. It really answered some questions for for me. I love the initial question um, you got to answer mm -hmm. later on. How would it feel to go into every job opportunity or boardroom without hesitation? Because you have a clear value system that guides you. How would it feel to have renewed energy and focus to put your skill set to work by stepping out of things that are not meant for you and actually prioritizing your own needs, reaching that career milestone that you want and establishing the legacy that you know you're here to leave with your authentic leadership. I am thrilled to be opening enrollment for our You Belong in the C-Suite group coaching program. This program is for leaders who are ready to step into the next level of their career without sacrificing everything and their values to get it. You belong in the C-suite and it's time that you start believing it. The world needs more diversity and authenticity in the top jobs at organizations. You are ready. You have what it takes to get there. And I'm going to show you the skills that it takes to thrive there. Learn more at thecatchgroup.com slash group coaching. That's thecatchgroup.com slash group coaching. You mentioned in your methodology, you asked similar questions across mm -hmm. all 30 of your interviews. Mm -hmm. I'd love to highlight a few of those right now. And I'd love okay. to get some insights on some of them. Um, I was able to get an advanced copy of your book, which I have dove into. So Great. thank you so much for that. You're welcome. But, um, but I, I love these questions. And I think that you, like you said, you know, the kinds of questions to ask. And I loved all of the questions in your list. But I love, I specifically, I loved this idea of what would you have liked to have more of in your mm -hmm. career and what would you have liked to have less of? Mm -hmm. And so I'd love to hear some of the highlights or um, different stories that stood out to you in those answers that your interviewers gave you. Sure. So in terms of what folks said they'd like to have more of, it was really clear that among the 30 men that I talked to, uh, roughly half of them probably had some experience with mentors and coaches. The others did not. But the overarching theme from all of them was that it's beneficial to have someone who can play that mentor coach role. 
all of them agreed that they had sponsors and allies because they wouldn't have gotten to where they've gotten to if someone wasn't speaking on their behalf. So there was certainly a, a recognized importance of having mentors, coaches, allies, and sponsors. And the real emphasis was on the benefit of having a mentor if you have one and how you have to work around that. So there were some fascinating stories in there about those who did have mentors. One young man spoke specifically and quite vividly about having a white male who was his mentor, who was really in a position of authority in the town where he was living and working, and how that man, they had conversations on a regular basis. And uh, his mentor said, you know, what do I need to do? Who do I need to introduce you to? You need to go into this setting with me. Here's what it's like. Here's what you should expect. Here's what you need to do and be. That was valuable to him very early on in his career to be able to have access to someone who was such a mover and shaker, who was also genuinely interested in his success and how he could navigate in U.S. corporations. So he talked on and on and on about the value of that. Conversely, there were others. You know, one person said, you know, I couldn't buy a mentor, right? He said, I have looked for a mentor all of my career. I've never been able to find one. And many of them really bemoan the fact that they could not find a mentor for whatever reason. And that was a struggle. But again, the beauty of their stories and a purpose of the book is there's a message in that as well. And the message is that you can be successful without having a mentor it's going to be a little bit more of a challenge to say the very least, but it's not impossible. So for folks who are thinking, I've never had a mentor or I don't see one on the horizon, that doesn't mean that they should give up. It means that they should remain focused and look for other ways, you know, to uh, to advance and to get people who will who will pour into into them and to sh and to share what they need to know so that they can be successful on their own career journeys. So that's to the theme of what people said they'd like to have more of. What folks said they would like to have less of, and there were a number of themes there. One of them was, you know, people were very candid. You know, they they feel that the world has been stacked against them as black men, and within that, they talked about the need to ensure that they were making white people that they worked with feel comfortable being around them. Right. You know, yeah. one man said, you know, I am six something and I weigh this amount and you know I'm I'm a big guy. He said, and and by my very presence. I make people uncomfortable sometimes. And so I'm judged, right? Because of how the good Lord created me, I'm judged. And he says, I have to be aware of that. And I have to work through that. I have to work around that. So those are examples, you know, on, on either end of what people said, I'd like to have more of this and would love to have less of. And again, those experiences combined make this group of 30 more determined to do what they can to keep the door open for the next generation of people coming behind them. What about you from your own career journey? Can you answer those two questions based on your own experience? I can. I would love to have had a mentor and would still love to have a mentor. That's something that I didn't have. I've had you know a couple along the way, had one really good mentor early on in my career. And sadly, he passed away from a massive heart attack. So when he passed away, that was really probably the last mentor that I had. So I miss that. And even today, I miss not having a mentor. You know, this journey that I'm on now, you know, who knew that the result of my dissertation would be a book that's in the marketplace? 
I'd love to have someone who's been down this road and can just walk me through what's going on. And on the days that I'm feeling nervous or anxious, I'd love to be able to say, hey, I'm just having a moment here. Can we talk? Uh, I don't really have that person to be able to do that. So I would love to have had a mentor back then. And even as I've gotten older, I would still love to have a mentor. But that was certainly a part of my journey. It was not in the cards for me to have a mentor. But as I said, I have been blessed beyond measure with sponsors and allies along my entire career. These are the people who, when I was not in the room, said, Chuck is the person for this assignment. Chuck can take on this expanded role. Chuck is good at this. Chuck's not good at that. And here's how we're going to help him become even better. So I've been blessed to have folks to step into those roles. Would love to have had a mentor along the way. Just someone I could go to and just be Chuck and have very candid conversations with. So that's the answer to what I'd love to have more of. What I'd love to have less of, again, is I'm a black man and that comes with its own set of of challenges. And uh, as as one of the guys in the the book said, uh, he paused as we were talking during the interview and he says, you know what, what must it be like for people to assume that the minute you walk in the room, you're the smartest person in the room and that everything that you say is correct and makes sense. And people are going to stop and listen simply because you were speaking. He said, what must that be like? Because that was not his experience, nor has that been my experience either. Right. There are times when, you know, I can be in a setting with people and I can say something and there's little or no response. A few minutes later, someone else can say pretty much the same thing. And all of a sudden, that is the best idea. And I stop and I think, okay. And when I was younger, that would have bothered me. Now, all I'm concerned about is, are we doing the best thing and making the best decisions? And if we are, it's okay in terms of who, who said it and got it across the finish line. The point is, it's across the finish line. So, yes, the, the whole challenge of being a black male and having to feel like that on an ongoing basis, I am proving and reproving myself and why I'm in the room to begin with and the value that I bring while I'm in the room. Thank you so much for sharing your experience. I really love these questions that you've asked, because I think, like you said, they are, there are some themes, but there are some differences. Mm -hmm. Those themes, I think, carry beyond the population that you interviewed, Mm -hmm. it feels like. And so tell me about, tell me about that impact. What do you hope and who is the who is the reader that that you think will get the the most out of this? Tell me more about the impact and the outcomes that you want to have from this book because it feels like some of these things are um, unfortunately universal experiences mm-hmm. that that some underrepresented groups absolutely mm-hmm. have had. So there are at least three audiences for this book, at least three, and and there are three obvious ones, right? So the first is African Americans men and women who are working in U.S. corporations today and really are on that journey. They could be at the beginning, the middle, or the end. This book is for them because at some point you'll be able to pick it up, read one or two of the experiences and say, yes, I've seen that or I've experienced it myself. And again, the learning is how each 
each survived and got to where he is today. So while the stories are from 30 African-American male executives, I would offer that any African-American working in U.S. corporations today can read and can understand. So so they're an audience. Another audience is those those youngsters who were in high school or they're, they're the future Chucks, right? The ones who are considering at a very young age, well, what do I think I want to do? Um, and have I ever seen someone do this? And what might their journeys be like? There's something in this book for them to learn and glean as well. And so they're also an audience. Another audience is people who don't look like me, right? So uh, my, my, my white counterparts, you know, there's a story in there for you. The story is that your lived experience is likely different from my lived experience, and that's okay. And what will you learn from my experience that will make you even stronger and even better as a leader, particularly as people have the ability to shape policy, to be able to hire, to be able to make critical decisions? It's important for all of us who get to do those types of things, to really be focused on the the broader world around us and the experiences of everyone around us so that as we make those decisions, we're doing so not just from our lens and our lived experiences, but from the, the experiences of everybody around us. So that's what you get when you read this book. If you happen to not look like me, you get an insight into what 30 African-American men have had as their experiences. I will share with you that I have a colleague who read the book and, and said, I never knew. I never knew about some of the things that you've experienced. I never knew about some of the things that the many you interviewed have experienced. Thank you for making me aware. That, Laura, is a home run. That's exactly what I want people to get. It's okay to never have had those experiences. It's not okay to not be aware that those experiences exist every day for everybody else and great for my colleague who said thank you and i and i've now learned from that that means the world to me so those are at least three audiences that i think would benefit from this and there are lots of other audiences as well those of us who are uh geeks in the academy and all mm -hmm. that there's a lot to learn in there from from that perspective um and many many more audiences but those are the three that come to mind Thank you so much for sharing. I think um, that story that you just told, it's very powerful because I think sometimes in my experience, I've seen this unfortunately play out mm -hmm. um, in, in boardrooms, in leadership mm -hmm. meetings, that if that's not that person's experience, they almost don't believe that that experience is possible yes. Yes. because yes. they've never experienced it themselves. So how could it that's be right. true? That's right. right. That's um, especially if those are negative things yes. um, or, ne or have negative outcomes, yes. right? And so I think to your point, like there is information like this that mm -hmm. shares people's lived experience and that not just allies, everybody can, can really dig into to broaden our perspectives of others' lived experiences mm -hmm. to that, that go beyond your own. That's right. So we talked a bit about earlier about the idea of the barriers and what people wanted more of and less of, do you think those experiences then play the role in the leaders that they are? So are our folks then going to be more, more apt to mentor people, for mm -hmm. instance, where some of your interviewers, did they have a, a leadership culture that they, they mentored often? Tell me more about that. 
Absolutely. So again, as a group, for the most part, the things that they did not have are the things they're committed to having. So uh, towards the end of the book, we talk about the commitment because in order for things to change, uh, it's a team sport. And so specifically for these 30 men, they've said, you know, I'm a mentor. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, I I sponsor people. Right. I coach people. One gentleman said, my wife and I have established a scholarship Mm -hmm. right at a university that allows us to do these things and to bring along the next generation. And so, yes, folks are very, very committed based on what they didn't have to ensuring that. As, as they're transitioning in their careers, they're leaving the doors open for others and leaving things better off than they found them. And that's certainly, that's my story as well. Um, I love to guest lecture. I get to guest lecture maybe once or twice a semester at, at uh, some of the colleges and universities across the U.S. And I will always say to them, here's how you can contact me. And I give my cell number and I give my email address. And I say, just reach out to me. I can always find 15 minutes, 20 minutes at some point to have a conversation with you. And maybe the conversation is, well, how are you doing? Mm-hmm. And what have you what have you wrestled with lately that you just want to talk about? And I'm always pleased when people follow up and, and give me a shout out. More often than not, they don't. And again, the advice to my younger self would be, when someone gives you that opportunity, you need to seize that opportunity because that's a part of the way that I choose to give back as well. I didn't have mentors. I've talked very openly about that. So I'm always willing to, again, be that thought partner. If mentorship is what you want to call it, I'm happy to do that. Um, but I am always willing to make myself available to people of any age and, and any race, quite frankly, as well. So it's, this is not about, this becomes less about race for me at this point in my life and career and more about just helping people in general. And again, that was the commitment that I sensed from the 30 that I interviewed. They're in it for what makes the most sense for people who are currently in U.S. professions, U.S. corporations, and those who are coming along. I love the option that you give, the accessibility that you give to folks, because you're, it's very true. Probably not a lot of people are reaching out because they might think, oh, I might be bothering him. Oh, he really mm-hmm. didn't mean it. Mm-hmm. No, really, he means it. And mm-hmm. you need to take advantage of those opportunities for mm-hmm. sure. That's true. I have someone that that I, I, I mentored. She's in undergraduate school. And I guess I mentored or had a coaching conversation with maybe a year ago. She sent me a text about an hour ago and described in the text something she was trying to wrestle with. It's a communications opportunity. And I said, do you have time to talk at four o'clock today? She responded back and said, I do. I said, I'll call you at four. Again, we're going to spend 15 minutes. She's going to solve the problem. She doesn't know that I'm not going to solve the problem. I'm going to ask the right questions and she'll come (laughs) to the solution. And guess what? She will learn something about the problem and that she could actually solve it. And she now knows again that if you if you reach out to me, I'm going to do my very, very best to make that connection so that you can get better at what you do. And I'm not the only one. There are others. The point of this conversation is there are others who are more than willing to do the same thing. You just have to ask. Yeah, I love that. I love that sentiment of she doesn't know she's going to be the one to solve it, mm-hmm. but she probably <laughs> wouldn't have the confidence to do it if you weren't there to support her. Perhaps. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And advocate for her and give her the confidence of that, that, yeah, that is the right decision. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, I have really enjoyed our conversation today and I want to know what is the best way for folks to learn about you, connect with you? Is, Is it LinkedIn? What do you think? 
LinkedIn is always the best way. I am on LinkedIn often. Uh, Chuck Wallington uh, on LinkedIn. And the book is The Sea at the C-Suite Table. And folks can find it on Amazon or any place that you buy your online books. I love it. Well, thank you so much. We're going to link um, your LinkedIn and the link to grab the book Great. in our show notes. And I just want to thank you so much for sharing your thought leadership, your lived experience and your research with us. And thank you so much for putting it out in the world. I can't wait to, I'm about halfway through. I'm, I'm like really excited to dive in even deeper to some of these insights, but thank you again so much for your time today. Thank you, Laura. I've enjoyed it. I want to thank you so much for listening to the You Belong in the C-Suite podcast. If you are enjoying this content, please remember to rate and review on Apple Podcasts. By leaving a review, you are helping others find this content. We will be featuring five-star reviews on air in upcoming episodes. Editing and support for the podcast is done by S&E Podcast Management. To get more tips and tools to help you live a life guided by your values, go to thecatchgroup.com. Keep your boundaries and take care.